There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kremitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast with Greg and Colin. And Greg, last week we talked about forecasts for the stock market for 2022. And there's quite a range in outlooks depending on which investment firm and analyst that you listen to. That's right. And I think we've we've sort of beaten that horse to death in terms of looking at what happened in 2021 relative to the predictions that came out earlier in the year. And in 2022, I think we're in the same boat. Yep. It seems like it'll either be a really good year or maybe not so good. Yeah. And you're right. We have spent a lot of time on that. But you know, at the end of the day, we have very little control over what happens in stock markets. But there are some things that we can control that we've spent some time talking about over previous episodes. Those things like fees, expenses, and taxes to some degree. And we wanted to have that conversation today. So one of those items, taxes. Today we have Jay Schmidt joining us. Jay is a partner with JMH and Company. He is a chartered accountant, certified public accountant, chartered business valuator. Jay works with Canadian and U.S. clients as he's licensed in both countries. And we've worked with Jay for quite a while now. So Jay, welcome to the Free Lunch Podcast. Thanks, guys. It's great to be here. I appreciate the opportunity to be with you guys today. Well, it's it's our pleasure. And, you know, as we're recording this, before we started recording, we were talking about, you know, things that you can control and things you can't control. What you can't control right now is COVID. And, you know, I have COVID right now. My son has had COVID. Greg, you have a family member that has COVID. It seems like it's everywhere, right? Right on. Yeah. So how does that relate to taxes? I have no idea. I guess I have COVID brain. It's like taxes. I guess taxes are everywhere too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Listen, Jay, let me, let me kick it off. And this is just something that you hear a lot. People say Canada has a progressive tax system. And to me, it doesn't seem very progressive. So maybe you can explain what exactly that means when sure. we have a progressive yeah. tax system. Yeah, progressive in the, in the sense that essentially the, the more taxable income that you earn, the higher rates of tax you pay based on marginal tax rates. So there are certain bands of income that attract certain rates of tax. And the higher the taxable income goes, the higher the tax expressed as a rate of percentage of that income gets. So that's as opposed to, say, a flat tax rate where you would, no matter what your income is, just pay a certain percentage as tax. Or the other system that you may refer to is a, is a regressive tax system where the U.S. used to have, as income got higher, and I mean significantly higher, there was a, a reduced rate of tax sort of in higher tax brackets. But in Canada, our progressive tax system gets us to our tax brackets as they go higher. In Alberta, once you reach about $315,000 of taxable income, anything earned over and above that is going to be at your highest marginal tax rate, which in Alberta is 48%. A common misconception with that is that once you hit a certain band, that all of your income will be taxed at that high rate, but that isn't the case. Everybody pays the same rate of tax 
based on that certain percentage. So just because you dip into a higher tax bracket doesn't make all of your income taxable at that high rate. It only makes the income in that tax bracket taxable at that higher rate. So, Gotcha. And you mentioned tax brackets. So what are the current levels at each band? Because, you know, it's funny, I, I still think they're 30, 60, and 90, which they were maybe 25 years ago. So what are the tax brackets now? Right. So they, they range every, anywhere, like I was saying before, in Alberta from 0% up to 48%. So we can kind of run through through some of the bands, but the first tax bracket is from zero to just over $14,000. So if you had $14,000 of taxable income, you would pay no tax. Then the next bracket goes up to about just over $19,000, where you'd be paying 15%. And then from that 19,000 up to about 50,000, it's 25%. 50,000 to just over 100,000 is 30.5%. And this is on ordinary income, like employment earnings or interest or something like that. There are different tax rates that apply in these bands to different types of income, like capital gains and dividends. So Canadian dividends from Canadian corporations, so either eligible or other than eligible dividends. From 100,000 to 131, we're at 36. From 131 to about 155 and a half, we're at 38. And then up to 157,000, we're 41. And then kind of, so we can kind of go through them. Anybody can go look them up. It's easy enough online, even if you go to taxtips.ca and look for the marginal income tax brackets, you'll find them there. But it creeps up once we're at that 40%, it sort of creeps up over the next $100,000, $150,000 to that maximum of 48%. Okay. And, and, and in Alberta, so there was a change a number of years ago when the New Democratic Party took over control, because prior to that, I believe Alberta had a flat tax on income. And then that changed, I guess, back that's correct. Was, five years yeah. ago or so. Yeah, yep, that's correct. So we used to be flat tax in Alberta, no matter what you earned, it was 10% of your taxable income. Now it starts at 10%, but goes up to a maximum of 15% in Alberta, and that's on income over over about $315,000. So it goes up gradually from 10 to 15% from about 130,000 up to 315. Right on. Okay. Well, listen, you mentioned maybe just as a reminder for people, you could run through how different types of income is taxed, because that can become important considerations when we're looking at maybe people in retirement who are drawing on their various sources of cash for cash flow. So maybe if we can just review those a little bit, that would be great. Sure. So your your highest taxed forms of income are going to be employment income, interest income, income from your RRSP, so a certain pension income, but other types of income attract lower rates of personal tax. Currently, under current legislation, capital gains are only taxed at half of what your marginal tax rate would be on other types of income. And then dividends is the other sort of more tax preferred or tax advantage type of income. Eligible dividends attract a lower rate of tax other than eligible dividends. And the reason for that is because they're paid from Canadian corporations and they're paid out of tax corporate funds. So the lower personal tax rates just take into account the fact that there's already been corporate level tax paid on that income. So that's essentially why it's, I mean, that's not the concern of the, of the normal investor because the corporations, the stock that they're investing in, that tax is being paid by those companies. What's an issue to them is, are they eligible dividends or other than eligible dividends? 
because that determines what the tax rate will be on those type of dividends. And again, it's from Canadian companies. So dividends from foreign companies, so non-Canadian companies, are taxed in Canada at the same tax rates that, say, interest would be. Jay, I got to ask you, excuse me with my COVID voice here, not a radio voice. The one that's in the news all the time these days happens to be around capital gains inclusion rates. You know, any changes coming to that? And one that people talked about were things like, will they be applied to principal residences going forward or all kinds of different theories of change? Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So there's been a lot of chatter sort of in the tax community and through the media and things like that about changes coming to capital gains rates, capital gains inclusion rates, and even tax rates as they would apply to the sale of principal residence. So to talk about a principal residence, first of all, if the home that you live in does qualify as your principal residence, there is an exemption available, an unlimited exemption available that would eliminate any capital gain on the sale of your your primary residence. There has been some talk about changes coming that would perhaps apply tax to something that currently is not taxable. It's crystal ball stuff for sure. I I don't see a point in time when when they would just make the capital gains on your principal residence 100% taxable or, or included in your income at whatever the inclusion rate would be. But it's possible we could move to something, a system like the US where you get a certain amount of any capital gain on a tax-free basis and then any amount over that is taxable. I could see maybe something like that. I don't anticipate it, but if there was going to be a change there, I would see that it come in something like that. And then the other piece you're talking about there is the capital gains inclusion rate. So that's sort of been the more thought of as the more probable thing that may happen. There's been an opportunity for the government to do it when they gave their economic update just before Christmas. That was sort of one of the milestones where we anticipated that if something was going to happen, it may happen with that economic update. It did not. So that's kind of good news. The other upcoming event that where something may be introduced is with the budget that'll come out this spring. That was probably the more likely place where it would be introduced if it was. There is talk about the capital gains inclusion rate going from its current amount of 50%, so only half of a capital gain is taxable, to an inclusion rate of 75%, which is where it was back in the early in the early 2000s. It went from you know, 50% up to 66%, up to 75, and then back eventually down to 50% where it is today. So there is sort of a track record or some precedence of the capital gains inclusion rate being higher than it is currently. I guess popular thought or, or common thought is, is that that, if anything will be changed, it could be that. It's, as I say, crystal ball stuff. We hope it doesn't happen. If it does, 75% inclusion is sort of where where we're thinking it may go. But again, that's just based on history. So, Jay, a question for you on that. So we obviously get, you know, the markets have been very strong over the last several years, nothing like a global pandemic to, you know, give a good boost to the markets. But because of that, a lot of people are wondering, well, gee, is it better to, you know, crystallize gains now while we know the rate is 50% as opposed to holding on and crystallizing later, possibly when the inclusion rate is 75%. So I know this is a very, it's a, I'm sure there's vague answers because there's so many depending ons, but on a qualitative or subjective basis, where do you see the benefit of, of crystallizing now versus differing for some potentially long period of time? 
Yeah, it's a good question. And again, tough to answer. It's going to be fact specific for certain clients and things like that. If you are going to realize a capital gain and you know it's going to happen in 2022, like let's say you've got a rental property, you're thinking of selling or something along those lines. So to extend it beyond just to investments and things like that, if you've got a rental property that you know you're going to end up selling, maybe you try and sell the thing before the and have a close date before the budget comes out just to sort of insulate yourself that way if you were going to incur the gain anyway. Other than that, it's really a time value of money. Do you do you crystallize the gains now, pay the tax, end up with your higher ACB, but now you've essentially accelerated some tax, albeit at potentially a lower rate of tax. So it really depends on your, on your hold period and things like that after that. So from a time value of money perspective, if you were going to hold on to the stock anyway for 10 to 15 years, then maybe, maybe you'd rather pay the tax later at a higher rate than pay it now and have less invested over that period. But if your time horizon for realizing some gains due to other circumstances was going to be in the short term, then I'd probably lean towards doing it pre-budget rather than post, just so you're assured of that 50% inclusion. And can you just tell the listeners like when the budget typically comes out? Typically comes out early spring. So typically late March, early April. It's been deferred over the last couple of years because of the pandemic, but I would anticipate probably that third week of March-ish, somewhere in there. And then when when the budget does come out, let's say there is a change. It's not an immediate change, right? Like there's a date. No, it's it'd be effective as of the date of the budget. At the date of the budget. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's why that's an important one in terms of when you sell and when you don't. They like to surprise you rather than give you a bunch of time to sort out your affairs. And then there's an insurrection of the capital. Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> Just joking, of course. Potentially. Potentially. <laughs> Jay, we did a big series on estate planning before the end of the year. And you know, one of the things we hear from people a lot is, oh, well, you know, when, when you die, you lose half of your money to taxes. And we know that that's not true. And obviously, we try to dispel that, that rumor. But can you can maybe just explain you know, how assets get taxed on death and therefore why most people don't lose half of their money when, when they die? Sure. So yeah, so that's, that's a common thing. And I think it's born out of the 48% tax rate that people round up to 50 maybe or something like that. The issue is, is when you pass away, you're deemed to dispose of all of your assets at fair market value at the date of death. So any unrealized capital gains that you might have in your your investment portfolio or things like that, they're all considered to have been realized that day. So considered to have been sold and and then reacquired. So you still have your adjusted cost base in your investments and things like that. So even though let's say you had a a $500,000 investment portfolio worth $500,000, doesn't mean you're cutting a check to the government for 250. If there's only an unrealized capital gain in there of $50,000 or something like that, then we're only worried about paying tax on that $50,000, not the full 500 in that case. And also your, your gains on your passing are net of any losses. So it's really only the net the net gains on any portfolio, things like that. As discussed before, under current legislation, there is no tax related to your home on death anyways. Or RRSPs and things like that, they can, depending on who the beneficiary is set up, the tax on those can be deferred to a surviving spouse so that they're really a last to die sort of is when the tax would essentially kick in there. And even that, those are deemed to be distributed on date of death. So there certainly can be some 
some tax on RRSPs and things like that. But tax-free savings accounts are just that, they're tax-free. So on, on passing, there's no tax implication to those things. So based on that, I mean, probably you're, where the biggest chunk of tax would come from if everything wasn't left to a surviving spouse would potentially be on the, on the RRSP. Okay. I've had this question a number of times over the years from people that maybe they're maybe they're a widow or a widower or they're divorced, whatever. And they say, can I name my children as beneficiary on my RSP? And you know, I think the answer is yes, of course you can name your children as beneficiary, but the tax would still have to be paid. Is that is that correct? Correct. So that's where we see some people get into a bit of a pickle if they don't have sufficient other assets in their estate to cover the tax on the RSP. Because what can happen if kids are named as beneficiary is that the RRSP is just divided up pro rata and paid out to the beneficiaries. There's no withholding of tax or the tax is still borne by the estate, not by the recipient. So if your only asset is an RRSP and it gets paid out pre-tax to the beneficiaries, the estate still has a, a tax bill to pay on that. The beneficiaries have really no obligation to pay that tax. So unless they're willing to give some of that money back to the estate to pay the tax, the estate is essentially on the hook. So that's a a bit of a danger for trustees of the estate or just the estate itself if it doesn't have sufficient other assets to pay the debt related to the tax on the RSP. Right. Bouncing around a little bit here, Jay, but take advantage of the fact we've got you on the on the call here, a lot of our clients are they're reaching the age of retirement and they're drawing down, as we talked earlier, drawing down on their on their resources, on their assets, or earning income and living off income and that kind of thing. And a lot of people think that the goal is paying the absolute, you know, least amount of tax possible at all times. But there could be situations where it might make sense to pay some tax, you know, maybe at a lower rate now than at a higher rate later. So, you know, and I'm thinking about people if they if they have lots of non-registered assets, but they don't have a lot of income, it might make sense to actually take some income from an RSP just to, for some reason. So can we maybe just expand on that a little bit? Sure. That's a, that's a good point. So in terms of availability of your low tax brackets, you only get one shot at them. They don't accumulate if you don't use them in a specific tax year. So like Greg says, if you've got a lot of, a lot of assets, but maybe not a lot of taxable income, it may make sense to start drawing on things like RRSPs earlier to take advantage of those lower tax brackets rather than waiting until you're 71 and flipping over into an RRIF or RIF and having to take a minimum annual withdrawal that all of a sudden, because you hadn't drawn all along the way, is of such a size that you're dealing with other tax issues like being in higher tax brackets than you would have been if you had drawn smaller amounts earlier, or even put you in situations where some of your old age security benefits get clawed back because of the quantum of income that you have. So there's also other reasons to do it. If you're over age 65 and you're you're not quite into the over the top of the second tax bracket in terms of income, it may make sense to draw on the RRSP just to use the pension credit as well. So there's a flip to the RSP to a RIF and then withdraw from the RIF to have that pension income to use up that pension tax credit, that sort of thing as well too. So if you're in lower tax brackets and you have significant RRSP, it can make sense to draw earlier. Are you accelerating the tax? Yes, you are, but at a potentially much lower tax rate than if you wait until later and let some of those lower tax brackets pass you by. 
I got a, a layered question in regards to what you're just talking about. Because another common question we get is, number one, should I convert my RSP to a RIF at retirement early? So that's the first part of the question. The second part is, how will that affect my CPP and OAS? And you know, how should I layer this? So can you just briefly address that multiple layered question about layered income? Sure. So in terms of how it would impact or, or why you would flip to a RIF at retirement, you can move from an RRSP to a RIF at any time. The issue is, is how much and when do you have to take income out of the RIF? So you're forced to take a minimum annual withdrawal at the year after you turn 71. You can move it into a RIF at any time before that if there is reason to generate pension income for like what we talked about before to either use pension tax credits or to to fill up lower tax brackets. So that's that piece, but how it affects the CPP and OAS. So with Canada pension plans, CPP benefits are just based on what your contributions were over your working life. So your level of income doesn't impact the amount of your benefit for Canada pension plans. I mean, your level of income is going to, because of the marginal tax rates that we talked about earlier, is going to impact the amount of tax that you pay on those benefits, but the benefit itself won't change for CPP. For old age security, when you start to draw earliest at age 65, if your income is over about $80,000, And essentially, the eligibility for old age security phases out between $80,000 and about $133,000. So if you have taxable income, or I should say net income, greater than $80,000, the CRA is going to start to claw back some of that old age security benefit up to about $133,000. So if you're over $133,000 of net income, then the entire benefit is clawed back at that point. But that's not such a bad thing. Right? Because that means you're making $133,000 in retirement. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Yes. It certainly doesn't mean that you're, that you're living outdoors or anything yeah. like that. <laughs> and then the second part of that question, I'm sorry, Greg, I just want to finish this one thought, is often people say, okay, let's say I retire. I've got my RSP, I've got my non-registered, and I've got my tax-free savings account. Which one should I draw from first? Typically, tax-free savings accounts are just that tax-free. So you've got the ultimate deferral there. There's no taxation at all. So oftentimes you leave those ones to the end. RRSP, it makes sense to defer as long as you can. So you would leave your RRSPs until you're forced to take them out typically. And prior to that time, if you have a gap between retirement and when you're required to start drawing on RRSPs and RIFs, it makes sense to use to use non-registered investments at that point in time. So the most powerful thing about taxation is deferral. That's the goal. Defer the tax as long as you can in most situations. Sometimes it doesn't make sense, but all things being equal, that's what makes the most sense. So those RRSP, those registered investments can sit there and grow on a tax deferred basis for as long as possible before we start to, before we start to draw on them. Right on. And I guess that's again, just subject to what we talked about earlier. And that is, unless somebody wants to, does not have a lot of actual income. Correct. And and I've heard, actually, I've heard accountants basically say it's unforgivable if somebody doesn't have at least $14,000 worth of income each year, of course, because that's the, there's no tax on that, that first 14,000. Correct. Yes. Unforgivable, strong word, but (laughs) you should do everything you can to have at least that. Yes. 
So this, you know, as people are starting to do their tax planning for this year, and you're going to be, you're going to be busy, what are some kind of the typical deductions and credits that are available to people this year? You know, if, if people, God forbid, doing their taxes on their own, or using a, a software just to make sure that they're capturing all the, the, the most, you know, common ones. Sure. The biggest ones are your medical expenses. As number one, it's probably a good idea to consult the CRA website on what on what are eligible medical expenses. People might be surprised at what qualifies for the tax credit. Gathering all of that information and keeping all of that information, even if you're paying private health care program benefits like Blue Cross or some other type of private health care insurance, those premiums can qualify as, a, as an eligible medical expense for purposes of the credit. Medical is a big one. Donation receipts. Calgarians, by and large, are very generous and often make significant donations. The tax credit for donations is significant. So once you get over $200 in, in donations, except for up in the, in the really high tax brackets where it's actually a little bit better, but rule of thumb is basically each dollar of, of donation saves you 50 cents in tax. So it's even higher than the, your highest marginal tax rate. So there's a bit of a tax arbitrage there with donations. So those are big ones. Political donations can count as well up to certain maximums. The other common ones that are with a lot of the clients that we work with and the clients that you work with are investment advisor fees for non-registered accounts are obviously deductible. If there's any interest on funds borrowed for investment or to, for income earning purposes, that interest can be deductible in certain circumstances. So we want to watch with that. The biggest one or one of the common ones this year as well too is the expansion of the working from home credit like due to the, due to the pandemic. So employees that were required to work from home due to the pandemic, there is a sort of a flat rate per day that can be expensed as an employment expense on your tax return. Last year, the maximum was $400. So it was maximum of $2 a day for up to 200 days. So that's where the $400 comes from. For 2021, that amount has been increased to $500. So any employee that was that was working from home, definitely track those days that you were working from home because of COVID. That's an easy one. The nice part about that one is you don't have to track, you don't have to keep any receipts all you have to be able to do is attest to the number of days that you that you worked from home. So there's no, it doesn't have the same sort of onerous record keeping requirement as say people who use the detailed method to calculate employment expenses. So commission salespeople, things like that. So that still require the declaration of conditions of employment from their employer. So you can still go the detailed method and then you can ultimately choose whichever yields the higher result. So for, for a lot of people last year that weren't commission salespeople, because commission salespeople typically have, have higher expenses where the detailed method is going to be the way to go for them. But other employees who are just compensated based on salary, from what we found last year, we had run a couple where people, because there was a sort of a modified detailed approach that you could use for those type of employees. And typically the simplified $2 a day rate ended up being as good or better without the burden of keeping receipts and, and all of that other record keeping. So that's going to be a big one for 2021 as well. I kind of hope that that credit goes away after 2021, which means we're all back in the office. <laughs> yeah, right. And one other one that you mentioned earlier, and that's the pension tax credit. Yes. And so how does that work? Who qualifies for that? 
So the pension tax credit is available on eligible pension income. So if you're over the age of 65 and have eligible pension income, either through, say, your company pension or an RSP that you flip into a RIF, RSP income would qualify if you're age 65 and older. For people under 65, you can still have access to that credit if you are receiving pension income say related to the death of a spouse or something along those lines, you can still qualify under 65, but it's a little bit more restrictive. So even somebody somebody who might still be working at age 65 and up, if they have an RSP, they could convert a portion of it to a RIF and, and get $2,000 tax-free anyway. Absolutely. Yeah. And so the tax credit is essentially up to the top of the second tax bracket. So it's 15% federally, 10% provincially. So if you were working, you would probably be over that amount, but you still get the credit. It just wouldn't 100% offset the tax on that. It would offset most of it, but not all of it. Right on. Excellent. Colin, how are we doing for time? Well, we're pretty much out of time and I know we want to finish with sort of a, just a fun little speed round. Are there any other questions you want to pose first? I just have one, Jay, and, and maybe this is for you and, and other accountants. How can people that use your services kind of best prepare? What do they need to give you so that you can do your job as easily as possible for them? Good question. So with the idea of minimizing professional fees and being as efficient as possible. So us, like, like most other professional service companies, we invoice based on time spent. So the more time, the higher the fee. So if things come in you know, nicely organized, especially with medical receipts, donation receipts, if they happen to have a rental property or have self-employment earnings, if they've got their, their income and expenses itemized you know, on an Excel spreadsheet or somehow otherwise organized so that we're not filtering through the proverbial shoebox sort of thing, that obviously cuts down time. So in our profession, time really is money. If things come in well-organized and complete, saves us time on our end and saves the client fees on their end because of the reduced amount of time. We have access to a lot of the traditional tax slips, T4s, T5s, and things like that. CRA is getting pretty good at getting most of those posted so that we have access to those but it's the beyond sort of basic stuff. So your your business expenses, your employment expenses, your rental income and expenses, those types of things, and receipts for medical and donations and things like that. If those are neat and tidy and easy for us to go through, then it saves time and money on everybody's side. Great. Greg, question for you. Are we recommending Jay Schmidt and JMH and company for people to use for tax planning and preparation services? Of course we are. Of course we are. We use, I use them myself. You know, thank you. They do a great job and we're happy to do that. And that's one of the reasons why we wanted to have Jay on the show is to let people know about this qualified professional that does a great job. Appreciate that. And we're, that's a big thing for us is to make sure that, that your clients are very well looked after and that the overall goal is tax minimization. We, we don't want to step over into tax avoidance. That gets you into trouble, but nobody wants to pay any more than they have to. And that's our goal of what we do here. You know, asking questions along the path to preparing the tax returns, you know, hey, we think you might have, is this something you have that maybe you didn't include in your package to us, those sorts of things. Asking those questions to kind of prompt some information from people to make sure that we're not leaving anything on the table and that we're paying tax within the rules, but the minimum amount required, because that's that's where we want to be, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So listen, we should just real quick, 30 seconds, lightning round, just for fun. Jay, what do you, when you're not 
preparing people's returns and, and saving them all kinds of money. What are you doing for fun? Oh, what am I doing for fun? Well, in the summertime, we like to get out at the lake and be on the boats in the other 10 months of the year, just chasing kids from hockey rinks to ski hills to wherever else around. That's what we do from after work through the weekends and probably no different than most other people. My two are 12 and nine, so they're very busy right now. And it's it's good to have their little hands busy. So, yeah. Well, Jay, with the young kids to look after, it probably eats into a fair bit of your, you know, what I would otherwise call spare time. Any binging TV shows, series that you're binging right now? Oh, good question. Oh, I just finished something the other Ted Lasso on Apple. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. I think that's probably maybe the best show on right now. Oh, the new Dexter New Blood, the new one. That's pretty good. That's just finishing up here this week. So yeah, that was the one I, I couldn't, I think that's on Crave or HBO plus or something like that. So yeah, that was the one that slipped my mind, but my wife won't let me watch it with her, especially right before she can't sleep after that. Show. So <laughs> I'm on my own on that one. <laughs> well, you could liken tax evasion to your dark passenger. Yeah, right. right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. All right. Anything else, Greg, or should we let Jay go? No, I think we should let Jay go. We've taken enough of this time, but so much more we can talk about. So maybe we'll we'll have you back you maybe in, in the fall and talk a little bit about advanced tax planning for next year. That's great. Yep. Thanks a lot, Jay. Okay. Thanks, you guys. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2022.